Welcome to The WarPod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Program, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces in the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Program is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Megan Kalsa-Peterson, the Research and Policy Officer at ORG, and today I'm joined by Ewan Lawson, who has a long history of working in defense policy, including for Rusi, and who is currently serving as a fellow for ORG. I'm also joined by Amanda Bryden, the Conflict and Humanitarian Advisor at Save the Children. Thank you very much to both of you for joining us today. We're going to be examining the importance of incorporating a strong focus on the protection of civilians, which we will refer to as POC throughout this podcast, into UK policy. In both the UK's strategy on the protection of civilians and armed conflict, which was recently updated after a long wait, as well as the integrated review, which is a process that comes around every five years in which the UK examines its approach to foreign policy and how it must change to address new challenges and developments. Now, of course, we've been looking at this for quite a while here at ORG, both when it comes to the integrated review and the POC strategy. To the former, we've been releasing a series of briefings and lessons from remote warfare that must be acknowledged in the integrated review, including a focus on POC. And to the latter, in late July, we released our newest report called Forging a New Path, Prioritizing the Protection of Civilians in the UK's Response to Conflict, which looks at the UK's approach to the POC strategy, but also its programs and among its forces. And I think first and foremost, it'd be great to hear more from you two, um, our two guests, and hear more about your work you've been doing in the last few years on POC. So can you both outline your work? Hi, Megan. Thanks very much for for having us. Um, So I work for Save the Children um, in the conflict and humanitarian uh, team. And we've been focusing on uh, the UK's protection of civilian strategy for the past few years because we've identified that uh, one of the ways to really make a difference for children on the ground is having very strong policies and practices um, and frameworks for those policies and practices at capital level. Um, that uh, there's never just one silver bullet to protect civilians. And so what you need is a framework that uh, provides cohesion and collaboration for the different departments across government um, uh, and uh, you know, defence mechanisms to be able to uh, provide the protection at all the different aspects along UK interventions. Um, it's also the recognition that Uh, Protection isn't just physical protection in the middle of a conflict, but needs to be thought about in the complete sort of life cycle of of a conflict itself. Um, And there are many ways, uh, including in humanitarian assistance, um, where protection can be um, vital um, considerations for for what states need to be doing. And with the the UK, um, they had a protection of civilian strategy in 2010, but a huge amount has happened in the last 10 years um, in the evolution of the protection of civilians, um, the MADIC track at the UN Security Council, but also uh, more broadly in new conventions, new schools like the political declaration to protect schools from attack, the schools declaration, that really needed to be incorporated into um, UK initiatives. Um, And then there's also initiatives that the UK themselves led, like the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative, um, that uh, should be incorporated into that framework and become part of a a more cohesive whole of how the UK approaches its foreign policy, uh, its defence, its work on the ground. Um, I'd also say um, that conflict has changed quite a lot in the past 10 years as well. And so... 
you're seeing, I mean, there's always been wars fought in cities. We know that from, from time immemorial, but we're seeing more urbanized conflict and more protracted conflict because it's more complicated. There's a, a diversification of actors. There's non-state armed actors um, and the tactics of, of embedding a, um, uh, within towns and cities and asymmetric warfare is putting civilians right at the front line of conflict themselves. Um, so there's, yeah, going into more of those challenges in a, in a bit, but I think those are kind of some of the key reasons why we've really wanted to see the UK updating its strategy um, and as a, a leader of, and champion of the international rules-based system, um, uh, leading on protection of civilians at the UN Security Council, we really saw an opportunity for the UK to bring up um, and strengthening these frameworks for dealing with challenges you know, in 2020 and beyond. Thank you very much. I think that reflects a lot of the work we've been doing as well in regards to how warfare is changing. Um, I think also in regards to the way the UK is engaging, where it's much more through partners and much more with air support. And then especially when you're working in an urban environment, that does create different challenges and the challenges raised in the 2010 policy, definitely. Ewan, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so um, I, I come at this really from two separate but related angles. You know, firstly, I'm you know, over 25 years uh, as a military officer, as a practitioner, um, and with interest particularly in things uh, around peacekeeping, uh, peacekeeping in Africa, and, and indeed, you know, watching the transition from peacekeepers fundamentally being only authorised to protect themselves to the adoption of a more proactive uh, protection of civilians uh, position. And then at, um, at RUSI, um, you know, part of, of, of the work we were doing on protection of civilians was to try and move the discussion on actually from um, the, the, the near obsession, if you'll forgive me, with um, airstrikes and, and targeting procedures, which, whilst clearly not perfect, um, are very rigorously controlled, to looking at some of the other activities, particularly partnering. Um, you know, I was very struck when you look at the pictures of Mosul, um, you know, the narrative is this is all being done by airstrikes. Well, actually, the reality is most of that damage was probably done by indirect fire, artillery, mortars, or direct fire, tank guns, rockets, that sort of thing. Um, and most of those will have been fired by, um, by indigenous local actors. Um, and you know, it's what is our responsibility in, in, in that position? When you hear of um, a, a weapon system called JP-233, which was designed to um, block runways in um, in, in Europe during the Cold War being used against marketplaces in Yemen, you know, uh, 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 by an ostensible ally of the UK, you know, then, then I think, you know, there's, there's, there's broader questions we need to be, uh, to be looking at. And then more recently, um, um, I left Rusi about a year ago, I've been looking at um, the protection of civilians from cyber operations, particularly military cyber operations, um, uh, with colleagues from uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross and a report on that hopefully uh, will be coming out before the end of the year. And I'm currently now looking at protection of civilians in hybrid uh, conflicts and particularly at the non-kinetic aspects of, of hybrid conflicts um, and also potentially um, looking at the attitudes of militaries to a potential return to state-on-state -state conflict. So you, know, you quite often hear from some Western militaries a narrative that says, yeah, we get protection of civilians in peacekeeping and counterinsurgency and those sort of activities, but, you know, 
in a fight with another substantial state, then all bets are off. You know, the military necessity argument comes to the fore again. And, and I, I think we need to explore that. We need to develop some arguments around why um, POC is not just uh, an obligation, but an opportunity. You know, that a military that adopts good POC practices, you know, potentially has the ability to, um, to gain military advantage you know, from adopting those. Um, so, so that's really what I'm, I'm working at the moment. Sounds incredibly interesting. And again, very um, similar to a lot of the findings that we have, where you'll hear this argument, like you say, that actually, when you, if, you, if there ever is a return to the state-on-state combat, then POC won't matter as much. Whereas all the research we've done as a civil society, as a, like the many, many groups that we're all doing research, we seem to always find that there's so much strategic importance as well and so much military importance, like you're saying, to having strong POC. And so saying that it doesn't matter in state on state isn't really a valid argument. And so I guess before we really delve into the main discussion, I want to just go back a little bit to a report that you two wrote, along with um, Anissa Tbilisi from RUSI, uh, the UK strategy on placing civilians insight for the review process, in which one of the first things you do is to outline the definitional differences between um, different groups working in POC. And it'd be great just to hear a bit more about these different terms that are thrown around when you discuss um, the protection of civilians and how they overlap. Um, So for the protection of civilians definition, um, I think one of the the ways to to look at this question is to go sort of right back to the origins of of where the concepts came from. Uh, Back um, 20 years ago, over 20 years ago now at the Security Council, um, uh, protection of civilians was was defined within uh, peacekeeping operations, and it was looking at how to ensure that the UN peacekeepers and their uh, mandate were protecting civilians on the ground. Um, and it was looking at physical protection, um, protection uh, within the the peace operations themselves, um, uh, and it was. Um, I think something that was quite narrowly focused and, and thought about for uh, that track of work on the UN Security Council and um, often what we get with those thematic tracks is quite a siloing of, of approach. Um, but I think what we've seen over the past 20 years is, is a widening sort of understanding of the concept of protection. Um, uh, it's a much broader, uh, as I said earlier, thinking about a broader concept of protection that looked at um, where uh, uh, the protection of the civilian is at the heart of that definition. Yeah, I mean, I think in, in the research, one of the things that, for, for the Eurasia report, one of the things that leapt out was, and I framed it this way, I'm not sure it's a particularly helpful way to frame it, there's almost a sort of positive perspective on protection of civilians and a negative perspective. You know, the positive perspective is, is you know, if you like peacekeeping, it, it's taking positive actions to deliberately protect civilians you know, as part of a military operation. Um, and then the negative aspect is making sure that the activities you conduct also help to protect civilians, i.e. don't encourage or, um, or create a, an unnecessary risk of civilian harm. Um, and... And I think one of the things that you know that has changed in in the last twenty years is this, the perspectives on civilian harm are broadening. Um, civilian harm, I think, you know, probably as recently as ten years ago, was primarily thought of as a as a physical thing. You know, it was it was death and injury. Um, I think now we're looking much more a much more broader definition, particularly psychological harm, 
um, but also looking at things like access to service um, and the impacts those have and, and, and the risks of civilian harm. On a more kind of tactical level um, within the UK, um, you know, I, I personally am, am somewhat frustrated by the definitional differences that seem to exist between government departments, and particularly between the, the MOD and the FCO. The MOD, um, you know, I, I think in a, in a positive way, uh, adopted a human security strategy approach um, in the last couple of years. But actually, you know, if you look at the definition of human security under the UN, I think there's something like seven strands to it. Um, and indeed, the um, MOD's own documents um, reflect that actually the only one of those strands I really look at is the protect strand. Well, why don't you just call it protection of civilians then? Because it just it's not helpful in having those cross government conversations when you've got you know two different two different labels going on. Particularly when you when you unpack it and you discover that they're they're talking about the world peace and security agenda, they're talking about children on conflict agenda, um, you know all things which are also part of the, of the FCO protection of civilians agenda. So I think those were some of the definitional challenges you know we discovered or or definitional contradictions in some ways. Um, that we found during the research. And I think that's something we've definitely found as well. Um, and it's one of those things, like you say, they are obviously talking about the same thing, but they've just chosen to adhere to different principles. And it makes it difficult to understand how they're going to collaborate on the ground, especially when the POC strategy makes it very clear that they're supposed to be delivering together um, on these protection things, but they don't have the same terms. And we found in previous research that actually these small terminological differences shouldn't really matter too much, can actually become quite big blocks in regards to collaboration between departments. Also beyond departments, beyond um, just the government trying to work with civil society when everyone's working with different terms becomes very difficult. Amanda, do you want to add anything? Are you? I think Ewan's answer was excellent and, and really comprehensive. Research really did um, look at yeah that positive and negative aspects, and and I think another another way to look at it as well that might be helpful is thinking about it as a spectrum. So at one end you've got a really broad concept. Um, and often the, the take that humanitarian organisations um, uh, make to this to this issue, and that it it takes um, uh, thinks about humanitarian, it places the centrality of protection of that that work. So it was, puts the the civilian at the centre of those kind of operations and the the approach that's taken. And at the other end, you have. Um, uh, a concept that's primarily related to physical protection, the imminent threat of violence, um, so much more relevant to um, peacekeeping operations and uh, rather than, than war fighting uh, in and of itself as well. Um, that it's a, it's a mandate of the UN. It's not um, necessarily one of the, the um, main core strategic objectives in that fighting as well. I think one of the, the challenges that we we found with the, with the research and talking with different parties and you see this playing out a lot um, in New York is firstly a, a difference in, in how it's viewed at capital level versus New York um, where they talk about the protection of civilians track on the Security Council um, and then also the differences between um, the different um, thematic threads, threads like uh, protection of civilians and children in armed conflict um, and I think a lot of that arises out of a different people within a, a mission having different mandates and different modes of operations um, and that mandate relating to the different parts of international law um, with children in armed conflict and monitoring of grave violations um, so, and the recognition that children face particular protection issues in conflict 
um, there was a, a, a reluctance or a, a worry that, that talking about a broad protection of civilians concept would mean that uh, the children have conflict gender and the protection needs of children might get lost in the hole. And you're also seeing um, it being used to cut budget, that if, if protection is seen as a really broad concept, then um, it, it, you, you start losing out the various pieces and the specialised expertise that's provided um, in, in different um, UN peace operations and, and more broadly. So I think that's a, a, a really, uh, yeah, it's a tension and a challenge, um, but I think uh, it's so important for, I mean, if you're the civilian on the ground, if you're the person trapped in the conflict, you're not thinking about these different silo definitions. Your protection at its heart and at its core is about ensuring that you're safe and secure um, and that your needs are met. Um, uh, and that's, yeah, both, as you were saying, negative, you know, don't do certain things um, to ensure that those civilians are protected. Um, but then also there's there's positive aspects of that um, and, and proactive measures that parties to conflict can take to ensure that they're minimising that harm and that impact on civilians. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I think that plays really well into the next question, which is about how well you think that the UK policy, the 2010 one, kind of approaches these issues and how well it actually manages to set out a really strong approach to POC. Um, and so, like I said, it was updated quite recently, in late August. So on the 27th of August, we had an update, finally, that we've been pushing for for quite a while. Um, we've had a lot of civil society meetings, a lot of kind of advocacy trying to get this update, and finally we've had one. Um, but I'd be keen to hear first what your main concerns were with the original 2010 POC strategies. I, I think it would be wrong to say that there was anything fundamentally wrong with the 2010 POC strategy. It, you know, it was a product of its time. And, and I think, you know, um, what we saw, what we've seen is, uh, and I'm always very reluctant to say the conflict has changed, because I don't think conflict really has changed, but we're seeing different aspects of conflict playing out. Um, and we're seeing new opportunities, I think, and I would use that word deliberately, opportunities to um, enhance the protection of civilians um, from some of those changes in, in conflict. Um, so, you know, whilst it's one that, that perhaps doesn't immediately leap to mind, you know, the threat from uh, military cyber operations, um, the impact on critical national infrastructure potentially in such operations, and indeed, you know, concerns about the ability to predict um, the impact of, of those cyber operations, you know, those, those sort of aspects of of uh, you know weren't even considered in 2010. You know, we weren't we weren't in that headspace, um, and you know here we are ten years on. And that you know that's that's an example of, of an issue. So I don't think it's that there was there was anything fundamentally missing from 2010. It's just it needed developed and built upon. Amanda, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no, I think that's exactly what we found. It a product of its time. I think is a really good description of it. Uh, there's a, there was a lot that had happened in the past 10 years that I think it needed to, to reflect um, uh, emerging challenges in, in the international space. Um, it, did, it did focus around peace operations, but there were some really good aspects in there about recognising the humanitarian response um, and that uh, importance of that in, in sort of the UK's toolbox of... of um, opportunities to be able to to engage in, in different conflicts. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the gaps around things like attacks on schools and hospitals um, and 
an understanding of, I mean, what we want really wanted to see is a focus on uh, the different groups within conflict and the recognition that different groups can be affected differently by conflict, depending on if you're a child, um, uh, you know, where you might face forced marriage um, or you might face recruitment and use by armed groups. Uh, if you're a woman, um, you're more likely to experience sex- sexual exploitation, um, uh, sexual violence and abuse and so being able to have a strategy that's that's really sensitive to what are the key challenges on the ground and what are the ways um, that the UK specifically can can contribute to um, increased protection of civilians around the world. Um, I think opportunities is, is also a really key word that you and um, uh, drew on for, for what the UK can be doing that, that there's huge amounts um, where the UK can be making a difference. I think one thing that, that wasn't in the 2010 strategy was was looking at things like um, data collection and um, thinking about, you know, where's the evidence for what's happening on the ground so so can respond to those challenges, but also how do we know if we're being successful or not? Um, and things like the sustainable development goals that we have and that states have committed to, to um, try and reach by 2030. Um, uh, Goal 16 looks at the amount of um, uh, violent deaths and conflict, and so or violent deaths and um, conflicts, and so how can uh, we know what's happening on the ground unless we can measure it? And I think some of the challenges of those remote operations and partnered operations need to be kind of thought about in the UK strategy and approach, and, and that wasn't so present in the 2010 strategy. Um, so ways to be able to reflect on that and um, come up with new plans, new strategies uh, that the UK can make sure that it's relevant and effective in the, uh, 2020 and beyond. Yeah, I think I mean, we agree with you a lot of what you're saying in regards to the main challenges being just the need for an update as opposed to anything like a fundamental change. Um, I think one of the things we noticed as well is that the 2010 strategy is quite focused on the UK as a peacekeeper or someone who steps in to prevent um, harm to civilians. It doesn't really speak much about how the UK can prevent harm from its own actions. Um, and so we'd be keen to see a bit more about that, definitely. Ewan, were you about to add something as well? Yeah, it builds, it builds exactly on what you've just been saying, Megan. Really. I was just going to observe that you know, the 2010 strategy is, you know, was produced at a time when you know, the UK, from a military perspective, was pretty much focused on operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. We had seen in recent years the sort of rediscovery of what can be called population-centric counterinsurgency doctrine, where you know, the counterinsurgency focuses on protecting the population uh, from the insurgent um, or separating the population from the insurgent, which should involve protection, um, and you know, protection of civilians... Um, uh, policies that came out of that you know, seem to really be generating out of that. What we've seen, of course, in the last 10 years is, you know, whilst the UK has continued to be engaged, not in the way in which it was in 2010, you know, much more about partnered operations now. Um, and, and I think, you know, that was a, that partnered operations piece was really key in, in what we were thinking about for a revision. And then I think the second thing is, you know, moving away from the counterinsurgency and the peacekeeping to the potential for substantial state-on-state conflict, or, or indeed, you know, those conflicts that are already occurring, you know, in, in eastern Ukraine, Crimea, um, and the like. Yeah, again, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think something, another development that it really needs to focus on as well is this focus on how important it is to have legitimacy 
So one of these changes that we've seen in warfare, even though you don't believe in the changing warfare, but even like one of the things that we've seen become more important is really trying to own the narrative about what you're doing. Um, and I think that's something that the UK needs to do a bit more. And it's good to have, it'd be good to have in the POC strategy to say, when there is harm, this is how the UK is going to respond. This is how we're going to communicate about it to ensure that we do um, justify our actions and justify our presence, at least try to have control of that narrative. Because if you don't, then it's very much just leaving it to others to take that narrative um, and try to take that over. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point because, you know, if there's one thing the UK got badly wrong, it was a narrative um, a, a, around um, coalition, UK contributions, coalition strikes in Iraq and Syria, um, where, you know, the statement, that, you know, we can only demonstrate that there has been one civilian uh, death as a result of a, of a UK airstrike, whilst might be factually correct based on, you know, the evidence and analysis have been collected, and I think... You know, to be fair, in our you know, in our research, there's there's no doubt that you know the UK takes this business seriously um, in terms of you know trying to find out what's happened and so on and so forth. But as Amanda rightly said, you know data collection is difficult; it's not prime prioritised sufficiently, and therefore, you know, if you then take that narrative, which is you know which is clearly untenable, frankly, you know. You're not really, you're not really actually doing the right thing, and therefore, you know, I think there's a number of strands to the point you were making. And one is about owning that narrative, in the sense of, you know, being open as open and honest as you can be about, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. But then the second thing is making sure you've got the tools in place that when you're going to say something, you know, you've you've got credible data and credible analysis on which to base it. As I say, I, you know, I, I genuinely think from our research that you know, if you went to the Air Component Headquarters, um, you know, there were people there desperately trying to, to get this thing right. But actually, you know, it's difficult. Um, and you know, it probably requires you to take data from people um, you know, in, in the third sector as a military that you wouldn't necessarily normally work alongside. And if indeed those people are willing to share their data with you because, you know, questions about how it's been collected. So there's a whole set of questions around there. But, but I really think, you know, that if you want to, you know, the classical example of how you can get it wrong, you know, the narrative coming out of the MOD, you know, only one civilian death was really, really unhelpful. I think that's something that has been reflected by everyone we've spoken to, including from within the military, where it's very, very clear that everyone doesn't believe there's been one casualty. But I just think when you have that public statement saying we've had one casualty, it needs to be followed up with the following statement that we only have evidence because our data collection methods are not good enough. Here's how we're going to improve them. And there's kind of been that lack of that kind of follow up. Um, and so it sounded like they've said in many cases, even though they made it clear that they have no evidence of more than one, it has come across as there's been one casualty, which I think is very damaging to the UK narrative. Amanda, do you want to jump in? Yeah, and, and not to get down a, a nerdy data rabbit hole as, as much as I would, would like to, I think um, yeah, that's been a real barrier to, to getting progress on really understanding what's happening on the ground um, with the UK. Um, I think with all the best intentions um, and because it has such rigorous policies and, and procedures about not causing civilian harm, that um, uh, portraying a narrative um, in, uh, unintentionally that, that war is not messy and difficult and um, causes a lot of civilians is has meant that, that there's been huge 
barriers and reluctant to gather, you know, put the resources into gathering that information and being able to um, uh, really understand the realities of, of what's happening on the ground. Because, I mean, by, by having, you know, really strong mechanisms to track um, uh, and record civilian harm, track civilian casualties and record civilian harm, is to uh, really be able to collect that information on the ground. And what you were saying about, you know, where do you get that information from, particularly when you don't have the, the forces present um, uh, and the boots on the ground. Looking at third sources, uh, yeah, third party sources, um, humanitarian organizations on the front line, um, human rights organizations reporting on these, and they're all kind of pieces of a puzzle that can be fit together. Um, that I think, and um, we'll, we'll come to this in terms of the new strategy, but when there, there's a complete lack of a mechanism, resources um, to have uh, that kind of focus within the UK, it's like we're operating blind um, and you're really not seeing exactly what the the real damage is to, to civilians and being able to incorporate that into not just um, your tactical response and how you um, shape operations uh, you know, in real time, but also in reflecting on that afterwards and having strong mechanisms for accountability. Absolutely. And I think it's also been shown that um, in previous conflicts in Afghanistan, for example, there was a huge turnaround in regards to the military success of the, success of the campaign. Once you had more focus on really acknowledging the damage that came from the UK's actions, to the US's actions as well. And it is more difficult in remote warfare because you're not present on the ground in the same way. Um, but there are different tools that can be used. And it'd be great to have more clarity on how those are going to be used in the future. And maybe going on to that, going on to how the UK has kind of updated its approach. Do you think that the current update to the PSC strategy incorporates a lot of those changes that are needed um, to the old 2010 strategy? I think the new the new strategy, it's, it's really welcome and I think um, we're really pleased to, to see it come out after the, the conversations over the past couple of years. It's been quite a journey and I think um, a huge amount of rich input and dialogue and discussion uh, across the different departments of government um, and actors uh, at UN agencies, um, uh, civil society, former military experts. I think the collaboration with RUSI was was a really excellent way to be able to feed into that and get the differing perspectives um, to, to think about what the strategy needed to say. Um, I think it, it's been very good and I think is very strong as a mapping exercise. So it really takes account of all the different aspects across government about what the UK is doing. And there's some really strong initiatives in there um, that really showcase the the role that the UK plays and and can play as a a champion for civilian protection and upholding um, uh, international uh, norm standards and and, uh, IHL. Um, I think what is missing and and in a perfect world, what what would have been really good to see was was a, a cross government strategy um, that really looks, um, uh, takes a good, honest look and, and tries to, to deal with some of the challenges about how this looks like in practice. Um, how is it fitting into the, the government's integrated strategic review? Um, how it does it, um, how does the merger between the Foreign Office and, and the Department of International Development kind of impact on, on how things will be implemented on the the ground. I think what we get from the, the strategy is, is not a clear roadmap for action. 
um, there's no blueprint about who's doing what and, and how we're doing it. Um, and in the research as well, um, some of the feedback on the last strategy was how do you measure success? What are the criteria? Um, what are the things that you're picking that you want to win um, rather than just sort of laying out all the, the different aspects? And I mean, it's tough. It's hard. And we're always we're struggling with that within a human, massive humanitarian organization when you're you know, trying to, to do the best you can. How do you how do you select and prioritize? But um, one of the, the really clear feedback we got in the consultations was unless, you know, you're putting names on tasks, um, it's really hard to be able to see how those things are being taken forward, um, how you can honestly reflect on whether you're achieving it or not. Um, I think one one of the good things that it does is is that it's trying to strike the balance between being aspirational and being practical. Um, and I think you know you can have a strategy that's that's trying to achieve world peace, um, and and you know that's unrealistic, and that's not where the UK's added value is and what its role is. Um, so while we're mapping out what they're already doing, they're striking a good balance between what, what they're contributing to, what they can do, but yeah, without seeing a blueprint. I think it's going to be really hard to be able to, to track progress, you know, celebrate success um, and also honestly reflect on, on where the gaps are. Um, and then I think lastly on that, that putting names on, on different aspects, you know, which department is doing what. I think uh, one of the, the big challenges in, in pulling this together was, was understanding, you know, which are the bits that the Ministry of Defence are, are taking forward, which are the bits that the, that the other departments are responsible for, um, and who there's no sort of protection of civilian department um, within within these bodies. So, so it's, it's really hard to be able to um, have a really strong kind of leadership and vision and someone that really drives this agenda forward. What I'm really interested in is is where these conversations are going to be taken forward within the integrated strategic review um, and also within the, you know, the MOD's human security initiative, sort of how are these different pieces fitting together when we're trying to operationalise them on the ground um, and also reflect on that success. I mean, I couldn't agree more with anything you're saying. Like, I think, first of all, it's fantastic that they have an update. It's something we were worried about that it might kind of just get lost in the whole COVID and Brexit and like all the other things, things that are going on, that it wouldn't be this update. So it's great to see that there is something coming out. Um, and I agree with you, like in regards to, especially around the practicalities, like it seems like it's very much reiterating the UK's values and the UK's approach in theory to POC and talking about like the um, women, peace and security, the children are conflict, like reiterating all these principles. But there's no practical um, approach to how is it actually going to do this. And so for example, when it talks about it mentions that they might at times um, suspend support to partners if they don't respect POC, if they don't follow the right approaches. But it doesn't mention the right triggers. It doesn't mention when that's going to happen and when the UK is going to continue to work with partners um, to try to train them in POC, even even if there are abuses. And so there's a lack of practicalities there. Um, and also, like you say, there's no real effort to kind of talk about the um, how to measure success and how to have that like monitoring and um, evaluation of the UK's efforts. And so, for example, it mentions how many partners it's trained in IHL, but it doesn't mention what impact that's had, whether it's, it can measure um, less abuses from those partners when it's working. Um, so it'd be great to have more practical details, definitely. Ewan, do you want to jump in as well? I would start by making an observation, which is that this is not, another, this is not a new strategy. Um, it actually says at the top, it's a policy paper. 
That's a, um, a good clarification to have, definitely. And I think that, you know, these things don't happen without there being a reason. Um, and, and I think it links absolutely to Amanda's point that if I was going to be overly critical, and why not, um, you know, it, it's really a sort of set of stories about how great the UK is and all the great things the UK does. Now, now all of those are perfectly valid and perfectly true. What they don't do is say, here are the things we now need to do to move this on. There's not there's insufficient focus on the um, you know, on, on the future. There's insufficient focus on where the problems are. And you know, you've both already highlighted some of those. You know, IHL training um, and and does that actually? You know, what effect does that have? I would say in in my own practical experience in South Sudan um, that training, for example, in um, uh, preventing sexual violence was having little or no impact on the conduct of the SPLA on the ground, this is in 2012, what actually started to have an impact was actually training military police and military lawyers who could then deal with breaches of South Sudan's own laws against its own people. Um, so in the nicest sense, you know, a week-long course in which lots of senior officers gathered together and come away with a certificate saying, you know, I've been trained in, in IHL. I'm not saying it doesn't have a value, but it needs other things with it. And, and this policy paper is is lacking in those sort of things it's it's you know it i suspect part of the rationale is that you know it's almost it's almost a contribution to the integrated review you know it's almost a saying here are some things integrated review you need to think about now you go away and develop a strategy um you know as part of a broader uk defense and security strategy so you incorporate protection of civilians into the mainstream of your business. So it's not a separate strategy thing. It's actually just what you do, you know. And But if it was going to do that effectively, I think it needs to signpost more about where the, where the gaps are, where the weaknesses are, and, and, and how you're going to develop, to, you know, whether it's data collection, whether it's metrics, you know, all those sort of things, um, rather than focusing on, you know, aren't we really good, you know, we've set up a cultural um, property uh, unit, well, great, but but how do we measure the success of that cultural property unit? And, and I would say that going back to the point about ministerial sponsorship, um, you know, the point about Hague is absolutely spot on in the way that Hague drove the PSVI initiative. The problem is that wasn't it was him doing it as a minister, but it wasn't about you know the the, um, the minister for foreign affairs doing it. It was about Hague doing it. And the problem is these things become far too short-term and personality-based. For example, I sense, I have some evidence, but probably not sufficient to, to be able to, to, to really nail this, that MOD's interest in human security is waning um, with you know, the current Secretary of State. It's not his number one priority. It was Gavin Williamson's. It doesn't appear to be the current Secretary of State. So we've got to move beyond this, where these things become... You know, personality driven, and I think you know the point that we made in in our recommendation about having a minister responsible. I think is really important, and and I, and I think that's something that's lacking. Um, so you know, my two big takeaways from from this are, you know, it, I'm really reiterating, Amanda, you know, it, it it lacks the detail um, of of how to how to move forward, and you know, it, it's largely self congratulatory on what goes on now. 
um, and it lacks that ministerial focus because cross-government working is a problem in the UK. It's probably lots of countries. Our system of government is deliberately designed for competition between departments, for resources and access and so on and so forth. It's almost like a balancing of power set, I think. That makes cross-government working really difficult. So unless you've got a focus, it's why the government's gone from you know, a comprehensive approach through multiple other approaches to eventually end up the fusion doctrine, because there's an assumption that the word doctrine means that people will have to do it rather than an approach where it's kind of voluntary. It's still not the reality. It's not the way government is set up. So you really do need you know, to have to have that focus, um, you know, to, to, to make sure we deliver. And, and I, I can't help but feel that this reflects a larger problem, which we probably don't need to get into today, with, you know, UK's national security strategy, which is it doesn't have a focus either. You know, I, I've argued for a while that we ought to be, you know, our catchphrase for the UK needs to be upstream conflict prevention. Um, and POC falls into that, absolutely falls into that. Because if you're protecting civilians, you start to decrease some of the rationales for people to engage in conflict. Um, you know, not all of them, but you start to engage in some of them. So the POC becomes an inherent part of that, as indeed does conventional military deterrence. Um, but with, there's just a, it feels very bitty. It feels you know, a lack of focus. And so I think it's great to see the update. We have to recognise it. A policy position and not a strategy, a policy paper rather and not a strategy. Um, and, and as a consequence, it does feel, as I say, a little bit like you know someone's making a pitch into the integrated review. So really I think the interesting question for you know for a future podcast after the integrated review is is there any reflection of protection of civilian issues in the integrated review outcomes? So if there isn't, then that's a problem. Again, I think everything you're saying is very, very true. Um so many interesting points. And I think it'd be great to have a podcast on that. We'll definitely get on that right away <laughs> um and again like you say as well i think in regards to this new update this new policy which you're right it's not a strategy i shouldn't that's a good clarification to have um but it is interesting that it does seem to have this kind of one size fits all approach to how to do this um and it doesn't talk about the importance of taking into account the particulars of every single situation it doesn't really talk about when you're working with partners it might not be enough to have IHL training it rarely is yeah i've never heard of a single case where it has been enough you have to have that analysis of what's actually needed on the ground and then how do you address that through IHL training plus other things as well. And even with only IHL, how do you measure the success? How do you ensure it's not just that 300 people have seen your PowerPoint, but also they actually implement it on the ground? How do you have that kind of further um, implement, implementation of the training as well? And then you both mentioned the integrated review as well. And so I guess kind of going beyond the POC strategy and this new policy paper on the POC approach, all the civil society groups that have been working on this for a long time have also been working on how to get POC more into the integrated review. And I'm curious about what gaps in particular you've been focusing on for beyond the strategy and the UK's approach to POC that you want the integrated review to kind of address. This review is going to be um, uh, one of the, the really sort of hallmarks of how the, the UK can be taking its approach forward. It will be one of those framework documents and, and one of those blueprints. I mean, uh, a pessimist in me sort of says, well, if, if it's if it's not necessarily going to, to really focus on that and, and um, pick priorities, that, that we might sort of end up in a, in a similar position to where we are now if it's not having any more focuses. I think what I've really struggled with with the integrated um, review process is, is just that transparency of um, consultation and approach. You know, very simple things like what are the timeline, what are the mechanisms for feeding in, um, how can we make it as consultative as, as possible? Because you know, the strength of the outcome is when you have that diversity of views. 
and you have that input and you have a consideration of the various different perspectives. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're working on our submission and, and we'll, we'll submit that. But I think, but, you know, with everything else going on as well, it, it's been a very, very challenging time to be able to uh, maintain sort of focus and priority and resources in um, really pushing the protection of civilians agenda. Um, and when you don't have that transparency, it's, you know, where are the levers, where are the conversations that you need to be having? So I think, yeah, and and I think the same with this position paper. I think I, I'm optimistically pushing strategy in the hope that it will come true. Um, but no, you're absolutely right that, that it, as it stands, you know, and what they say at the top of the document is a, is a policy paper. But for me, like the paper, the integrated review will just be the first step. Um, the devil will be in the in the detail. And I think the role of, of everybody within that, including civil society organisations, about how we monitor how we hold it, um, hold ourselves to, to the standards and the, the objectives that are laid out, and that is is going to be what will truly make an impact for civilians on the ground. Yeah, I I, I can't <laughs> can't disagree, um, but um, I, I I perhaps even go slightly further in uh, you know my there's a real opportunity here. Um, one of the first opportunities potentially since the end of the Cold War for the UK to clearly lay out what its approach to national security and defence is, you know, where it sees its role in the world, moving beyond pointless mantras like global Britain, you know, to something genuine and, and, and meaningful, which could have and should have protection of civilians as a narrative stream at the heart of it. You know, part of our national security strategy and defence strategies are to protect civilians. You know that's that's what that's why we exist. That's what that's what you know it's what the UK wants to do. Now clearly it has to put limits on that in terms of you know what it can realistically hope to achieve. You know, it, going back to Amanda's earlier point, you know, if it becomes a world peace type document, then that has no value. But you know, if it had that narrative at its heart, um, then I, you know, I think we're making a, a real you know, substantial stride forward. My fear is it will become about money and ships, tanks and planes again and who gets what and, and where it goes. And, 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 you know, some of that is an inevitable consequence of the budgetary issues surrounding um, the post-COVID recovery. Um, you know, we'd be naive to pretend that money is not a real challenge or a real practical issue now. But that shouldn't, that, should, that shouldn't stop you in, in an approach like the integrated review from taking a big idea like POC and, and just enshrining it at the heart of what you do. You know, that doesn't necessarily translate directly into your numbers of ships, tanks and planes. Um, it actually translates into how you employ ships, tanks and planes. Um, you know, it's how you employ your development agency, whatever form that takes as part of SCDO. It's about how you employ your policing advisors you send overseas from the home office. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a multi-stranded thing, but it starts, you know, it gives you a philosophy at the heart that everyone can understand. You know, what the UK is about is the protection of civilians in, in conflict situations. And therefore, you know, when blogs goes to country X to do Y, it's all feeding into that agenda. Um, and I think that opportunity will probably be missed, sadly. I agree with you, but I do think it's interesting that the government has really pointed to the opportunity and pointed to the fact that they want to use this opportunity to really 
outline not just the negative of the UK, what it isn't, but also the positive, what it does fight for, what it does mean to be British and what it means to be the UK. And so hopefully there will be a bit more detail. And like you say, it should have PSE at the core of that because it's so important, not just for moral and ethical reasons, but also for strategic reasons and for military reasons and many, many more reasons. It's important to have this at the very, very core. Um, and I also think it's important to have that just beyond the POC strategy, beyond what that mentions, but also with practical things like the OSTRA, the Overseas Security and Justice Assessment, making sure that it's not just about the strategic approach to the UK, but also in theory or in practice, sorry, this is how we're going to ensure that when we have these assessments of how um, the risks that might come from the UK's programs overseas, here's how we're going to mitigate them. And there's currently that lack of that process of how like the very clear and transparent solution to if we do identify risks, these are mitigation measures. Um, and again, with special forces as well, like it needs to go beyond just the strategy and the, the programs, but also every single part of the UK's approach, which in which special forces now play a bigger and bigger role. Again, there needs to be a clarification on how do you have POC within their work and how do you have um, POC when they're training others? So it's really important to have that kind of very wide approach to POC in the integrated review. And I do hope that we have that, although it's a small hope. <laughs> um, and I think with that, we're going to have to start rounding up. So unless you have any final comments. Okay. Well, thank you very much to both of you um, for your really interesting discussion. It was great to have you today. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read more in depth about the topics we've covered, we put links to any research or publications that we mentioned in the episode notes. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Program and the Oxford Research Group, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at org info and at remote underscore warfare. As many of you will have heard by now, ORG is unfortunately closing down at the end of the year. Luckily, the work of the Remote Warfare Program will continue under the new name of the Security Policy Change Program at Safer World. You can find more information about this on our website. You can, of course, also listen to any previous episode of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of our page. We look forward to you joining us. Thank you very much.